Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick in roughly the order they were published in. Currently, we are examining in detail Dick's 1956 novel, The Man Who Japed. This is part six of that series, so you might want to go back and listen to the other five five parts. But if you are just joining us, let me quickly go through what happened in this novel before the final few chapters. So our main character in The Man Who Japed is a man named Alan Purcell. He works making propaganda that is supposed to conform to the ideology of the state, which is known as moral reclamation. It's basically Protestant work ethic and Protestant strict religious morality. combined with a surveillance state, I suppose. This world emerged in the aftermath of, of a nuclear conflict due to the military takeover by a white South African leader named Major Strider. Purcell has one of his works criticized in by his superiors, and basically he's a subcontractor for the government, and he's forced to fire a long-standing employee, a long-time employee named Luddy. He's offered a job in the formal government bureaucracy as actually the head of the propaganda agency of the government, Telemedia, it's called. We also learn that there's an expanding society with a frontier, although many on the frontier are deemed morally and socially outcast. And as I talk about in the previous episodes, as people are deemed more and more suspect and dubious and incapable of sustaining morality, they're pushed out to the, the frontier. And the main way of doing this is through the psychoanalytical department the health resorts. Now, as people prove their morality, they're more likely to move towards the center. And this is done through the leasing system. And, and these two things sort of work together quite nicely in bringing the moral, most morally conscious and restrained people to the center and those who, who are, I guess, more libertarian in their morality up to the frontiers. Keeping the frontier in line, though, is a major preoccupation of the government, and this is one of the major anxieties they have, and that's a big concern of the propaganda agencies at the time. In the backdrop of all this is we have these strange activities that Purcell seems to be engaging in without any clear reason. So we learn that the, jet, the statue of Major Strider has been seriously vandalized. Although the extent of this vandalism is kept from the population at large, Purcell is able to find out more about it by visiting the site of the vandalism, and he collects various theories and details about what happened. There he meets a strange woman who gives him a card offering him a stay at a health resort. Her name is Gretchen Malparto, and later he calls to make an appointment with her brother, Dr. Malparto. Purcell confesses that he's actually the one who did the vandalism, but he doesn't understand why, and this is what leads him to seek out mental health advice. Now, during a public confessional, various members of the community are exposed for moral lapses due to being caught by surveillance robots called juveniles. And one woman is called up as an, you know, having sex outside of marriage. And then Purcell is brought forward as being a drunkard because he came in drunk one day. Um, One member of the community, a Mr. Wales, does try to defend him due to his position as a moral leader. 
Purcell does then go to the therapist, Malparto, who engages in a process using a technological device to resurrect his memories. He remembers talking to some boys about the frontier, trying to buy some illegal whiskey, and then going to meet some scavengers in Hokkaido. And there he drinks some sherry with them, and they're kind of his friends. His doctor suggested he be a precog, and his strange behavior is a function of his desire to avert some worse things that may happen in the future. Purcell goes to find his company has been subject to some industrial espionage, specifically Luddy, the man he quit, has gone to work for a competitor and has brought with him a lot of the agency's research. This is one of the things that pushes Purcell to just give up his agency as lost and to go and work for uh, Telemedia, become the director of Telemedia. He thinks at least from there he can punish his competitor. He goes back to Malprato, who, and he's tested for psi powers, and he goes through all these tests. But he blacks out, and he wakes up on another planet, living out a different life, in which Gretchen is his wife. It's a very decadent life, a very consumer-based life. They have these big suburban homes, and they're non-monogamous. They both have lovers. And it's all a facade. It's all created by the Malpartos as a way to... I guess it's posed as a form of psychotherapy, but it's, it's also a scheme to try to get him to stay there because if he's stuck there for too long, he's going to lose his job and lose his lease. So it's kind of, they want to kind of keep him on the frontier. He, he's able to break free of this, though, and able to get back home. He arrives one day before his, but just, he's supposed to start his new job. His future boss, uh, Miss Frost, scolds him for being out of touch for so long, and he's accused by his competitor of having had an affair while he was gone. He defends himself, though, and they don't really have much evidence, so he goes ahead and prepares for his first day of work. On his first day of work, he revives his old project that was rejected earlier, but also Gretchen Marpato comes to meet him. She's chased him down from the off-world, the other planet that he was staying on for a while. She tries to get... She, a lot of plot is discussed here, and a lot of themes are discussed in this conversation between the two of them. But she also tries to start a relationship with him while explaining all the things that happened on the other planet and get him to try to confess that he's anti-Morak. She kisses him and the entire thing is recorded by juveniles. Purcell is brought once more before the block meetings and he loses his lease. After a very dramatic condemnation of the entire system of block meetings and confessionals and public exposure of moral failings, he does in fact lose his lease. He meets his friend, Mr. Wales, who has gotten a new lease even closer to the center due to his upright and moral lifestyle that he maintained for so long. And I talked about in the previous episodes how important this was because it wasn't just you who benefited from this. You could pass on these leases onto your children. And you, unless your children's proved morally deficient, they kind of inherited your your clout. And that's, that's in many ways the currency of, of this world, hard work, morality, uh, you know, and being a proper citizen. And so that takes us really right up to the climax, the last few chapters of The Man Who Japed. Now, what we get right away, though, is a little hiatus from our main character. Instead, we're given a very short chapter. It's, it's chapter 20. It's, it's literally only one page in the book, maybe two, depending on the edition you have. And it's just Mr. Wales going to his new apartment. And it's worth reading the whole chapter because it's, it's 
it's a moment where Dick is able to reflect on some of the themes of the book through this minor character. And it's something he likes to do quite a lot. He, he likes to throw in these minor characters who don't have much of a role in the story, but are thematically very significant. And he didn't do it too much in Solar Lottery or The World Jones Made, but in novels like The Zap Gun, I can, I, that's what I'm thinking of. Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep has this too. You know, these, these one-off characters that, that have a compelling message are, are quite common. Quote, All alone, Mr. Wales surveyed his new apartment in the Unit R6 of Leasing Zone 28. A lifelong dream was fulfilled. He has advanced not only one but two zones toward Umphalus. The housing authority had investigated his petition, seeing the utter virtue of his life, his devotion to public good. Moving around the room, Mr. Wales touched the walls, the floor, gazed out in the window, inspected the closet. He ran his hands over the stove, marveling at his gain. The former tenants had even left their edufactured objects, clock, shaving wand, small appliances. To Mr. Wales, it seemed unbelievable that his trivial person had been recognized. Petitions lay in ten-foot heaps on the desks of the housing authority. Surely there was a god. Surely this proved that the gentle and meek, the unassuming, won out in the end. Seating himself, Mr. Wells opened a package and brought forth a vase. He had acquired it as a gift for his wife, a celebration present. The vase was red and blue and speckled with light. Mr. Wales turned it around, blue on the so smooth glazed surface, held it tightly in his hands. Then he thought of Mr. Purcell. He remembered all the times Mr. Purcell had stuck up for his victims in the weekly block meetings, all the times, all the kind words he put in, the encouragement he had given the tormented in their trial. Mr. Wells thought how Mr. Purcell must have looked coming up before the last block meeting. The dogs tearing at him, the female bitches guzzling at his throats. Suddenly, Mr. Wells shouted, I've betrayed him. I've let them crucify him. Anguished, he rocked back and forth. Then he sprang to his feet and hurled the vase against the wall. The vase burst and bits of green and blue and speckled light danced around him. I am Judas, Mr. Wells said to himself. He covered his eyes with his fingers so he would not have to look at the apartment. He hated the apartment. Now he would have what he had always wanted, and he didn't want it. I've changed my mind, he shouted, but nobody heard him. You can have it back. The room was silent. Go away, Mr. Wells cried. He opened his eyes. The room was still there. It did not respond. It would not leave. Mr. Wells began gathering up the fragments of vase. The bits of glass cut his fingers, and he was glad. So that's the whole chapter. Like I said, it's only one page. But for me, the most important part here is this idea that he got here through meekness. He didn't get here through will or through a true moral uprightness. He, he suggests here that it's Purcell who's much more morally upright and really caring for his friend and then caring for his friends and neighbors. And then the mention here of, of kind of Christian imagery of Judas and him calling to, you know, I let them crucify him, that Purcell is actually being the one who's sacrificing himself for, for others. And all this moral righteousness and meekness doesn't really gain anything. Um, quite, a, quite, I think, a, I mean, it, it's a bit obvious at times, but overall, I think it's an effective way to, to end this minor character and to kind of remind us that of, you know, Wales is, is the everyman, I guess, in, in this story. He's, he's pursuing what most people are trying to pursue. And putting value on like an apartment and the way the apartments mentioned at the beginning, it's R unit R six of the leasing zone 28. This is what this man sacrificed pleasure in his life for and sacrificed his friends and sacrificed an untold number of things to get, you know, 
a couple zones towards Omphalus, all for unit R6 of Lysine zone 28. So it ends up kind of sad. Well, anyways, moving on. So the next day at work, Purcell, so it's Thursday, he's told that he's going to be fired if he doesn't resign. He, he refuses to resign. And it means that they're going to have to go through the process of firing him. And that's going to take like a week. So this gives Purcell one week as head of Telemedia. So Purcell decides to make the best of the situation. He calls forth all of his workers and tells them that he's been fired or will be fired. He tells everyone that they have they can stay home if they want during his tenure. They don't have to come to work. They might even be praised for that. And that those who stay, though, will be asked to follow his orders and go to work. And he really basically announces that his plan is to jape Major Strider. He knows he's going to need to rush the packet out if he wants to do this before he's fired. Packets sometimes take months and months to um, be released. This is going to have to be a rush job. So he gets some outside help. He actually calls his friends from Hokkaido, the, the, the people who dig up the pornographic novels and sell them on the black market. Gates and Sugarman, I think they're called, they come to help um, to be actors in, in a show he's going to put on. He, he does a little rearrange the staff and he sees who's going to be left behind. And it's not many. A lot of people stay home, but he's got enough to kind of pull this off. He contacts the main researcher woman, who's, named, who's a large woman named Phyllis Frame. And she, her job is to basically dig up all the true historical material on the reality of the life of Major Strider, not the propaganda. Now, what is revealed, it does, it's not clear to me that it came from this research. You know, it's, so there's a little bit of ambiguity if the ultimate jape is based on this real historical evidence or not. Strider is a historical figure who's been inflated to myth mythical levels. So the reality of his life, no one really knows. Maybe some people do, but it's really not commonly known. Everyone just has the myth. It's kind of like George Washington in that way, or a lot of other national figures end up this way. But there's a little bit of ambiguity about how much of this Purcell made up, or maybe there's some truth to it. The sense that he calls it a jape suggests that, yeah, he's making something up here. But anyways, it's uh, we'll see what it is in a minute. Purcell begins advertising his upcoming packet release, which is based on the theme of active assimilation. And he's even got like these ads and promos for the, the, the talk. And he actually plants these seeds like there's this ongoing debate about active assimilation and we're going to debate it. This is a completely made up term, but it's presented as if, you know, it's, it's the hot button issue at the time. And, you know, I, I think media sometimes works this way, too, with, you know, to make something that's just kind of today's news into something that's like of crucial national importance. Quote, this is the press release. Talk of reviving assimilation. It is reliably reported that a number of persons high in committee circles who prefer to remain anonymous at this time favor revival of the post-war policy of active assimilation developed by Major Strider to cope with the then extensive threats to moral reclamation. Growing out of the current menace, this revived interest in assimilation expresses the continued uneasiness of violence and lawlessness as demonstrated by the savage assault on the park of the Spire Monument to Major Strider. It is felt that the therapeutic methods of mental health and the efforts of the mental health resort to cope with the current instability and unrest have failed too. So this is, this is completely made up for him. This active assimilation idea is a fiction. So I, I think it's really cute that he brings in Gates and, and Sugarman to help him with, with the packet. So 
So the main core of this pack is going to be released on a TV program called The Pageant of Time. And th this seems to be the format of a historical academic talk show. The program is sort of a slow burn. They just kind of talk about the war and they talk about the struggles that Strider faced after the war, particularly with counter-revolutionaries and other agents of the enemy. And they eventually get to the conclusion, though. And that is that Major Strider kept his followers alive during a period of starvation and deprivation and also simultaneously defeat and punish their enemies by eating them. Details given, including like details on the ways the enemies were prepared. Mrs. Strider even had a, a, a cookbook in which this is all described. And I'll give you a taste of what their, a taste, no pun intended, uh, a taste of what their the discussion was like. It, it's just presented as a, a, a quasi-academic TV program uh, where smart people talk about issues. Professor Sugarman sighed, contemplated, then clasped hands and went on. To fully grasp this situation, we must picture ourselves as living essentially without government in a world of brute force. What concepts of morality existed were found only within the reclaimer's units. Outside of it, it was a dog-eat-dog, -dog, animal against animal. A kind of jungle struggle for survival with no holds bar. The table and five men dissolved. In their place appeared familiar scenes of the first post-war years. Ruins, squalor, barbarians snarling over pieces of meat. Dried pelts hanging from solvany hovels, flies filth. Large numbers of opposition groups, Professor Sugarman continued. Sugarman continued. We're falling into our hands daily, thus complicating an already catastrophic problem by creating a stable diet in the devastated areas. Morak was on the ascendancy, but nobody was so idealistic as to believe the problem of creating a unified cultural milieu could be solved overnight. And the real sobering fact, evidently recognized early by the major, was the so-called impossible faction, those groups who could never be won over and who were doing the most harm, since reclaimers were principally operating against the impossibles. It was only natural that in plan worked out by Major Strider, these impossibles would be the most natural sources for assimilation. Further, I must disagree, Mr. Gates interrupted. If I may, Professor Sugarman, isn't it also true that active assimilation was already occurred prior to the Morak plan? The major was fundamentally an empiricist. He saw assimilation occurring spontaneously and was quick to take advantage of it. So it goes on like that. But eventually they talk about the different methods, boiling and frying. And, and then we get this discussion of this cookbook. The minute they get to this issue of cannibalism, then... The government starts to interfere and tries to shut down the program and there's a back and forth where the program goes in and out of broadcast while the two sides are kind of fighting over power but it comes right down to it that Purcell's people were able to reveal this historical fact about Strider that's going to become fact in the minds of most people because they eat up everything they hear about this guy that you know the founding father of their society the hero, in fact, all the heroes of the Moric movement were essentially cannibals. Now, anyone reading this or thinking about this is going to think of Jonathan Swiss, of course, in his very famous Jape, um, where he was responding to Malthus. I don't, I don't think he was responding specifically to Malthus, but to because he would have been before Malthus, but responding to like Malthusian ideas about it, about Ireland, that there's too many Irish and you know the Irish are poor. What should we do about it? And Jonathan Swiss was Swiss suggestion of course was you know we should cook them cook the children and then he goes he goes in the same way with the details of how these people were prepared or could be prepared 
that that work, of course, is called a modest proposal. But this isn't the only time. Now, the second example I have, I'm sure he he's no knew at least of Jonathan Swift. I don't know if he knew of Lu Xuan. Lu Xuan was a Chinese writer from the early 20th century. He's one of the so-called new culture movement writers. These were the writers active, really, b between the fall of the Qing Empire in 1911 and you know throughout the 20s or so. Basically, that early Republican period was kind of a period of cultural revival. Some people call it the Chinese Renaissance or the Chinese Enlightenment, sorry. One of these writers, and the most famous of them, was Lu Xuan. And he wrote a story called Diary of a Madman. And the plot, it's been a while since I looked at it, but the plot of the story is essentially a man is reading these old Confucian books, and he's horrified at what he sees because he sees on every page cannibalism being described, right? And now no one else sees these, but he sees it. And the point is that the, that the Confucian tradition is a tradition that promotes very vile interhuman relations, right? Essentially, metaphor. Right? the metaphor for this is cannibalism. And not everyone can see that, right? Most people read it and see moral virtue and honor and filial piety and all these great virtues. He sees something horrific when he reads it. But there's this idea that cannibalism is you know, a symptom of a sick society. So I don't know what, what inspired Dick to do this. If I, maybe none, neither of these did, maybe he came up with it on his own, but he probably certainly had knew about Jonathan Swift. So with this revealed, the story comes to an abrupt end. Purcell really doesn't lose anything by this jape. He's not really directly punished in any way. He's going to lose his job anyways. He already lost his lease. So you could say he had nothing to lose. Um, he, in fact, decides to leave Earth. He plans to live on the off-world colonies. He's going to go with Myron Mavis, who's also leaving. He's leaving because he's retired. Myron Mavis was the previous director of Telemedia. And he has like a half a planet out there somewhere. So there's plenty of room for him to go there. And so he gets his dream of kind of going out to the frontier. But and before leaving, though, he does confess to the world in kind of a public like to the press or something. He confesses that he he's the one who japed the major Strider statue earlier. So that mystery is resolved. And with that, the, the novel ends. It, it's not a very long novel. It really could be read just in one setting. I, I probably didn't have to go into as much detail as I did. But, you know, I think this is a kind of a fun novel to talk about. Um, thematically, it's quite rich. I think I have about 10. Yeah, I, I wrote down about 10 themes here, which I just want to kind of lay out here. And I, I'm sure this, there's more here, but I think these are the 10 big ones, the most obvious ones. And all these are themes we see coming up again and again in Dick's writing, um, particularly in some of the stories we've already talked about. So if you've been following along in this podcast, you can just kind of connect this to different stories we've already looked at as you wish. The first theme I would point out would be technological post-scarcity. Now, this language, technological, technological post-scarcity, is not something Dick would use. I, I'm sure I saw it before. I, I don't think I'm, I'm certainly not inventing it. Post-scarcity, I'm not. That, that, I'm really getting that from Murray Bookchin the anarchist thinker, but that's, that's kind of common across a lot of anarchist traditions that focus on automation and technology as a way of liberating humanity from work and inequality. Now, what we have here is the autofact system, which is described. In fact, even in the final jape against Major Strider, the TV program, it talked about this active assimilation was the program for survival before the autofact system was emerged. So we have that. We have the technology here to abolish work because production is done 
by by machines and we see several examples of it. And it's not something he really analyzes as much as he probably could have and he's going to do this in other works though like i think the crack in space in particular the auto fact becomes a major plot point and something that's much more significant tied to this would be a second theme is the work ethic the work ethic the well, this is really the ideology of of the whole society is rest on the work ethic the problem in the frontier is that is that people don't work as much and they don't see the value of work they're lazy and the reason and how how do you move up in society how do you move closer to the center how do you get a better lease it's through hard work so that's it's just there that that's the that's the core ideology we can talk about moral reclamation all we want and and the the sexual anxieties that the society seems the, the hang-ups about sex that the society certainly does have but at the heart it's about work and I, I think sometimes that some of the anxiety about sexuality is that it somehow seems contrary to work ethic, right? It's, it's something, I mean, especially I think a lot of the fear about masturbation that Protestant societies has, especially, you know, like in the 19th century, you know, it's a, it's pleasure one can have in, in a very antisocial way. And it's a pleasure one can have that doesn't have any clear utility, right? Pleasures that can be marketized are a little bit, easier to stomach i guess especially nowadays they may have been criticized in in the 19th century too certainly the puritans which in some ways are i guess is what dick is, is the people are on dick's mind when he wrote this novel they didn't think much of consumerism either even though they turned out to be kind of a, a merchant driven society in a lot of ways as well anyways there's a lot of contradictions here i i do think and especially the big contradiction though is between the autofact itself and the work ethic. I, I think these are not really reconcilable without creating a whole lot of unnecessary work and anxiety. Next, we have the surveillance state. My third theme, the surveillance state, and especially moral surveillance. And I talked about in, I think it's part three or maybe part two of this series, that the surveillance state here is kind of perfect because the juveniles can record everything. So, and people can only be punished for crimes or moral lapses, I guess crime is not really used too often in the novel, but for more, they can't only be punished for moral lapses if, if one, the, the community agrees, so there's this public forum on it, so there's a democracy to it, and second, that there's to be clear evidence. It can't just be an innuendo. So at one point, Gretchen, I think, you know, it must be chapter 17 or so, Gretchen says, well, this is a witch hunt, and there's another port in the in the book where it's made clear that these aren't witch hunts at all because you know yeah you're, you're dragging people up for adultery but they've actually committed adultery and they're on tape doing this that's the point of the juveniles that everyone who does a moral lapse is punished if they're caught and it means that it's like the innocent aren't really being under the laws of, of the society the innocent aren't being punished unfairly so there's a fairness to it which I think is kind of brilliant that, that Dick added it. Of course, uh, the bringing of democracy into the bedroom is something that I think should worry us. Um, but that's what this society agreed is how they're going to handle these, these issues and how they're going to enforce this. And then tying your, your social status to your moral history is, I think, an interesting addition here, too, because it's your lease. And your lease is a measurement of how moral you are. How close you are to the center measures how moral you are and how long over the long term. 
So that's moral surveillance and the surveillance state. And again, I'll just ask this question and hoping someone has an idea on this. You know, are we willing to accept a surveillance state if the result of that is a more fair justice system? You know, it, even if more people may be punished for crimes, if it means fewer innocent people will be punished. You know, I mean, the jury system, the prosecutorial system we have, it's proven again and again to be faulty, that innocent people get thrown in jail. And it's only through better surveillance, most clearly in DNA evidence, that we're able to actually release people. It, it's not because of less surveillance that people are getting out of jail on, on new evidence. It's because we have better surveillance. We're better able to investigate this evidence. Anyways, next, um, mental illness as social deviance is a clear theme here. And it's, again, pushing the mentally ill to the frontiers is something Dick does again and again, or pushing the mutants or the outlaws or people who don't quite conform. You'll see it, especially in novels like The Clans of the Elfane Moon. That's the best example of that. But there's other examples of it, too. You know, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is, is rather interesting because that's told from Earth, but it seems society's moved on to the frontiers and the people left behind on Earth are, are kind of the leftovers. The, you know, they're, it's not the center of human civilization anymore. We don't really know enough about the frontier societies to say maybe they're all crazy and weird. Uh, they have a slave society, of course, with uh, androids. But uh, Dick seems to have this geography of mental illness in his mind, and he, and he plays with this idea in a, f in a few different novels, and this is one of them. So I, I kind of like this idea of... And then identifying mental illness as, as social deviance in itself. That means it's not uh, a clinical issue so much, it's, it's, uh, or it's some mixture of a clinical diagnosis and a social judgment or a moral judgment. You never see that defense given. We see two block meetings in the novel, and in either case is the defense given that I'm mentally ill. So, you know, we, the new novel is so short, and Dick doesn't explore all these ideas, but there's a lot more that could be said. And we, we will come back to this issue, especially in, in Clans of the Alpha Moon, where we have a bunch of mentally ill people who form a fairly interesting working society. Um, tied to this is the frontier. The, the frontier is a place of of cultural creation cultural creativity of, of diversity um, yeah it looks a lot like 1950s america and that kind of is a bit of a throwback but from the perspective of morak society it is an ambitious experimental area whether you know it, in the ways it's experimental might be banal to us but from the pers perspective of morak they're really trying new things here such as you know living in big homes leisure uh, relaxation, shopping, you know, like there's a character who's not going to work, he's shopping all day. Non-monogamy is played with there. So anyways, the frontier as a place of some form of rebirth or experimentation or a foil to the core society. We've seen that a lot in the stories. Um, resistance. I, I think what, I think Dick has two things to say about resistance here. And, and one is just the idea of laughter as resistance. Purcell really is the only funny character in the novel. No one else is funny at all, as far as I can tell. And you don't notice it maybe until you come back after it being exposed. But yeah, he's, he's the only one who tells jokes. And when he tells those jokes, people get offended by it. So it seems that jokes 
are taken quite literally by people. They're, they're not understood as jokes. And Gretchen, of course, says at one point that you're special because you have a sense of humor. No one else has this. So laughter as in itself a form of resistance is the point here. But another thing about resistance that we're going to see again in novels like Vulcan's Hammer. You're going to see it in, well, you saw it already in, in James P. Crow too. And that is resistance can come from within the system. Resistance not being as effective from outside the system, right? I guess the frontier is a form of resistance to itself, but it's, it's coming from without. But Purcell is more effective and able to resist because he's from within, right? And that's the, that's the best, that's a figure best capable of, of underthrow, under, of sabotaging the system is the high positioned person from within. It's more clearly stated, I think, in, in Vulcan's Hammer, an underappreciated novel to be sure, but so is this one from time to time. So resistance from within the system. And Dick doesn't isn't consistent with this throughout his career. There are times he thinks resistance is best from without. Um, but here it's it's clearly you with you resist by sabotaging from within. Another theme would be mass media. Mass media being the way, main way that this society, this government maintains control over society, uh, maintains an ideology. Uh, all our major characters are tied in one way or another to the media. Even people like Gates and Sugarman, our black market workers, are, you know, they're distributing media. They, they're mostly involved with getting pornographic or other alt-band novels or vulgar novels and selling them for big payouts. So they're also involved in the media industry in a way, but Purcell, Frost, Mavis, um, all the major characters we have are in some way connected to, to the media. And that, that's really clearly what this novel's about. And Dick plays with the, uh, the role of the media in novels like, uh, what's it, the, the Yancey, I forget the full name of that, The Mold of Yancey it is. Um, but or in Foster Your Dead is another good example where the media creates this kind of paranoia about war. But most in the mold of Yancey, the idea that it's it's the media figure that's able to push public opinion one way or another. And here it's through these kind of propaganda campaigns, these packets that the agencies put out. It's not a big theme, but I would add monogamy to this list. Uh, Dick writes a lot about adultery and we have... A couple, we have one case of adultery, at least it's one of these people called out in the, in the meetings as an adulterer. And then we have Purcell being accused of adultery, and uh, he doesn't really commit it, but he's accused of it, and that's what brings him down in the end. And then we have on the frontier, it doesn't seem monogamy is a big concern. So in this kind of fake sub suburban world that Purcell kind of has for himself, where he's married to Gretchen, Gretchen is like talks about a fight he's having she's having with him over a man he slept with and it's it's like presented like why are you bothered by me having sex with this guy it like didn't bother you before and then later on he writes a note to her and again it's kind of a jape of a note but he says like so-and-so molly i think her name is you know is pregnant and we're going to talk about having an abortion or something and so he was apparently so apparently this couple that he was living the life of for a brief period of time, just a day or so, were non-monogamous. And that, that's, not a, that's not an issue. So, of course, they don't have the moral restraints of the core. 
but it, it seems it's they're, they're beyond beyond monogamy. So it's very much something you might see from the sexual revolution years, but a few years uh, too early. The public confessional, I, I guess that's part of the surveillance state, but that's the other side of it. And I think, yeah, the surveillance state part of it is the authoritarian side of it, but the public confessional is the more democratic side. No one is punished at these block meetings except by public consent and public you know, they sort of vote on it and agree that someone should be redeemed, someone should get a second chance, or someone should be outright punished. And I think that's that's a rather fascinating side to it. And, you know, the, the point is that we accept the surveillance state to a certain degree, right? Because we make it makes us comfortable. We feel safer with it. We like to see criminals captured. You know, and sometimes there's good reasons. Sometimes those cameras do make us feel safer. You know, if we don't want people coming into our buildings or whatever. And then finally, I'll say the core periphery theme. And I guess that's just re reusing the frontier issue, so I won't say too much more about it. But particularly here, the mechanisms of how people move to the core and move to the periphery. There's, there's institutions, there's technologies for doing it. The Housing Authority and MOREC and, you know, that brings people to the core. And, but the health resorts push people who can't fit into that out to the periphery. And it's a really interesting dynamic I think Dick explored here. It's... It's it's actually a shame this novel was not longer because there's so many great themes here that needed to be explored and worked out and thought up. Um, but this is the problem with so many of Dick's novels that he, he has a lot of great ideas, but he never has the time to really develop them fully. So I think that does it for The Man Who Japed. So thanks so much for listening to this series. I, I probably said more about this novel than anyone would presumably need to. Um, but anyways, I do thank you for, for bearing with me as as I went through this pretty much chapter for chapter. chapter, for chapter. Um, when I come back, I will need to finish up with Dick's 1956 publications. There's three more publications from 1956 in addition to this novel. Three stories, I think they're Minority Report and To Serve the Master. And there's there's one more story. I, I forget what it is. But when I'm, I'll do those. And then when I'm finished with that, I'll be starting another novel. Uh, the Cosmic Puppets, the published in 1957. So again, thank you so much for listening. If you have any of your own comments about the man who japes, uh, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I really appreciate it. And um, I'll be back with, I do believe it's Minority Report. Is I'll be back next episode uh, in about half a week or so with Minority Report. So thanks again for listening. Possess my tired thoughts once more. That living dies, that living dies, that living dies.